Uh, in Mark chapter 2, we are going to uh, start in verse 18, and we'll see where we go. Verse 18 says, and John's disciples, that's John the Baptist, John the Baptist's disciples, and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Let's pray. Father, this morning we've come into your house because we love you. And because we have been saved by your grace and your mercy. Each one here, whether we know it or not, are sinners. And yet you have lovingly saved us and lovingly brought us into a meaningful relationship with you. And I pray that this morning, God, you would, by your spirit speaking through your word, expound upon that relationship. That you would enlighten our hearts to the reality of the relationship that you've called us into. That you would ignite in us a fresh fervor for that relationship. Lord, I pray that if there be anyone in here this morning that has just grown kind of lukewarm or weary or just sort of ho-hum in their walk with you, that this morning you would ignite them. If there would be anyone in here this morning that would be religious, that Jesus, you would set them free knowing that you did not die upon the cross that we might be religious, but that we might have a living, loving, real relationship with you. Illuminate that this morning. Make it obvious. Make it wonderful. Do it for your joy, God, for your kingdom, for your honor, for your praise, because it makes you glad. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has been causing quite a stir in his ministry in chapter 2. You know that in chapter 2, we started out with Jesus teaching there in a a home in Capernaum, and the people were all gathered around, so many so that these four guys had this paralyzed friend, and they couldn't get access to Jesus to get the friend in front of them, wanting Jesus to heal the guy. So what did they do? They got smart, they got Uh, well, smart, and they got clever, and they got up on the roof, is what they did, and they dug a hole in the roof, and they lowered this paralyzed guy down on his pallet, dropped him right in front of the Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ immediately said to the guy, my sons, your sins sins have been forgiven. Wait a minute. He came just to get healed, you know. He couldn't walk. And Jesus said, I'm going to deal with first things first. My son, your sins have been forgiven. And all the religious leaders in the area, all the religious folks said, wait a minute, that's blasphemy. What is Jesus doing? Nobody but God can forgive sins. Now, any good Jew knew that. The Bible declares that. It's very clear in the scriptures. Nobody but God can forgive sins. He alone can wipe our slate clean. He alone can remove him as far as the east is from the west, bury him in the deepest sea. Nobody but God can do that. You cannot work your sins off. You cannot pray your sins off. You cannot hope your sins off. You cannot fast your sins off. You cannot do good works till your sins go away. Your sins remain until you are forgiven by God through Jesus Christ according to his sacrifice upon the cross. Only God can forgive. The Jews knew that. And Jesus said, well, so that these people might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, which is easier to do, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, pick up your pallet and walk, you know, because he could say your sins are forgiven, but nobody could visibly see that per se necessarily. And he said, well, that I might prove that my words are true, and I am God in the flesh, a proof of my deity. He said to the guy, stand up and walk. And the guy stood up and he walked. Amazing. And all the religious leaders are up in arms. Man, this guy's blasphemy. He's claiming to be God. He's forgiven sins. And then the crowd is gathered around him on another day and he's walking there in Capernaum and he sees Levi, the tax gatherer, the scum of the scum, the lowest of the lowest. And he says to Levi, Levi, you come and you follow me. And Levi gets up and he follows him. And then Levi throws a party for Jesus and Jesus is there at this meal, at this party, so to speak, with tax gatherers and sinners. With the worst of the worst, with a bunch of people that religious people will never be caught dead with, you know, filthy people, people that do things like get drunk and are prostitutes and are sexually immoral and all these other things that you and I are apart from Jesus Christ. 
And we see that in the scriptures, Jesus was with them, dining with them. And once again, the religious people get upset. Jesus, you are not a very good religious guy whatsoever. What are you doing with those people? You shouldn't be hanging out with them. And Jesus said, listen, it is not the well that need a physician, but the sick that need a physician. Jesus was talking about those who were spiritually ill, spiritually sick, the sinners in need of forgiveness. And that is who Jesus came to. Now, wouldn't you expect that a doctor would go to the sick and not avoid the sick? Wouldn't you think, what a cheesy, lame doctor, if there's someone there just hurting, just in agony and pain, just sick, and the doctor just kind of, oh, yeah, I don't want to get near him. No, by the very nature of who a doctor is, he goes to the sick person. Jesus is a great physician. By the very nature of who God is, he goes to you and I when we are morally and spiritually bankrupt and ill. That is our God, our creator, our Jesus. How badly have you sinned this week? There's nothing you've done that Jesus is not willing to forgive. How badly are you going to sin today after church? Some of you are going to do some jacked up stuff right here in church today. And Jesus Christ died to forgive you. Listen, that's because God loves you. He loves you in an amazing way. And Jesus Christ died upon the cross, not that we could just come to church. There's no merit with God in coming to church. You know that God is not easily impressed? I mean, he's the one who made everything, right? He made you, he made me, he made the stars and the sun and the moon and the mountain. The sea is his, for it is he who made it. The dry land is his, for he formed it with his hands. He's not easily impressed. He's kind of the man, you know what I mean? And so when we walk into church this morning thinking, well, I'm really going to please God today. I'm going to come into this big cold building. I'm going to sit down on this comfortable chair. I'm going to listen to this fool up here rant and rave for almost a whole hour. Man, God is going to be pleased with me. God is going to love me for what I'm doing. Look at me, God. I'm in the front row today. I'm in the front row at church, man. God, you must be loving on me right now. Man, that is not the fact. God is not impressed by that. We don't earn merit before God because of the things that we do. There's nothing we can do to impress God. He loves us exactly as we are. You mean with all my issues? Yeah, every single one of them. With all my stuff, with all your stuff. With all my shortcomings, with all my shortcomings. With all my talents, with all your talents. With all this baggage, with all your baggage, he loves you exactly as you are. Nothing you can do will improve upon that love. Nothing you can do will take away from that love. Nothing. So why does the Bible continually talk about works? Continually it does. You've got to admit that from the Old Testament to the New, it talks about we ought to be doing some stuff for God. You know why? As worship, out of a grateful heart. As I said at the beginning of the service, because I, Brent Merrick, was on my way to hell and earned every single bit of it, but I was saved. Not because of anything good in me, but because of how much God loves me. And he is my creator. And so I say, hooray, amen, my God, how can I serve you? What can I do for you? There is nothing you could ask of me that is too great. That ought to be the attitude of gratitude that every single Christian has. Is God asking you to do something? Listen, friends, you've got to step out and do it, not because you're going to please him, not because you're going to impress him, but because you are grateful for what he has done in your life. And so is there anything that we can't do for our God? And yet, we must know, we must discern, we must understand that God is never impressed with religious display. And when we endeavor to do things for God, with God, alongside of God, as we should as Christians, we need to have the right mindset about them. We need to guard ourselves against religiosity. We need to make sure that when we fast, when we pray, when we serve the Lord, when we do whatever we do with regards to God, when we come to church, that it does not become for us religious routine. In that is deadness. Look what happens. Jesus is there. Once again, the multitudes are gathered around and these people came and said, Jesus, John the Baptist, his disciples, they're very religious. Those are good guys. They're fasting. The Pharisees, super religious guys, they're fasting as well. Why aren't your disciples fasting, Jesus? You see, in that day, by every measure, fasting had become the measure of piety. 
Those who were truly religious, those who were serious about God, often fasted, or so the people during that day thought. The Pharisees fasted every Monday and Thursday. That is why in uh, Luke chapter 18, where we have the story about the Pharisee who was praying in the temple and also the tax gatherer, the sinner that was praying. Do you remember that story? The Pharisee stands there and he's standing in the house of God and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like this rotten tax gatherer over here. I fast twice a week. I tithe of all that I have. Thank you that I'm so wonderful, God. If you read that in Luke chapter 18, you'll be very uh, curious to see or, or very excited to see that it says he was praying thus to himself or with himself. In other words, God ain't trying to hear that, see? God wasn't hearing that prayer of, oh God, I'm so wonderful. Look at me in your house with my fasting and my giving and my praying. I'm the greatest. God doesn't hear that prayer. But the tax gatherer was down on his hands and knees, not even willing to look to heaven, humbled before the ground saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. There's a definite article there. Have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus said in that parable that that man went away justified that day. What does it mean to be justified? It's a big Bible word. It means to be declared not just not guilty before God. It's a legal term. It's not as though you stand before the judge and the judge says, okay, you're not guilty. But the judge says you are absolutely and completely innocent on all counts and everything. You are blameless. That guy, because of his simple, humble, heartfelt, non-religious, meaningful prayer, went away, declared innocent by God. Now, the Pharisees who were fasting every Monday and Thursday, we know that they were doing so with ill intentions. That is, they did so to be seen by men. The men might look at them and go, oh, what wonderful men of God. How impressive their spiritual life is. Look what they're doing. They're mourning and they're weeping and they're fasting. You see, fasting in those days was largely considered to be a thing of mourning a sorrowful thing. God only required the nation of Israel to fast once a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. We often call it Yom Kippur. And so God called the people there in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29, that they would fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the only time when any man would ever enter into the presence of God, and it was but once a year. You understand that in the Old Testament, people were separated from God by three degrees. That is, there was a tabernacle in that day. And in the middle of the tabernacle, there was the holy place. And in the middle of that, the holy of holies. And there was the ark of God. And the ark of God is where God manifests his presence, the Bible tells us, during the Old Testament period. But the people had to encamp around this tabernacle. And so there was this giant wall, this fence, this gate, so to speak. And the people were separated from the court of God by this big wall. Some of them, but not all of them, could enter in to offer up sacrifices. And yet there was another wall, a wall that led into the holy place. Now, none of them, except for some of them who were in the right Levitical family, the sons of Aaron, would ever go in there to minister in the holy place. There was the showbread, which represents Jesus Christ. There was a lampstand, which represents Jesus Christ being the light of the world. There was the altar of incense. And they would go in there and perform their priestly duties. But there was yet another another separation between God and man, and that was the veil of the temple that was reported at times in history to be 18 inches thick. And everything about the way God set up the priestly system and the system of worship in that day spoke one thing to the people. You cannot come near to me. That is what God spoke to the people. You cannot come near to me. You are not worthy. You are not clean. I am holy. I am separate from sinners, undefiled. We are separated by three degrees. Everything in the Old Testament worship system spoke of that. Except for once a year, the high priest was able to go in to the holy place and then open up that veil 
And he was able to go into the Holy of Holies, but only by the blood of the sacrifice. He had to sacrifice a lamb on his behalf and he had to be covered, sprinkled in the blood. And then he could go in having his sins atoned for. And then he would sprinkle the blood upon the altar of God. And there upon the ark of God, excuse me, he would atone for the sins of the nation. And the Jews knew and believed that if that man, that high priest was not right before God, that God would strike him down and kill him in that instant. And so they tied a rope around the ankle of the high priest when he would go in. Lest he be struck dead, nobody else could go in. So they'd have to pull him out. So on the day of atonement, all of Israel, this one day when their sins were atoned for by the blood of the sacrifice, every Israelite was called to fast. It was called affliction. God said there in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29, you shall afflict yourselves. In other words, they were to mourn over their sin. They were to cease from eating food entirely for a 24-hour period. Mourning, weeping, lamenting over their sin. Now, for you and I, that is not the case. Everything now about the worship system that God has set up speaks that we can come near to God. Indeed, that we can go directly to God. You see, he completely destroyed and reversed the old system. When Jesus died upon the cross, we are told that supernaturally, the veil in the temple, that 18-inch thick one, was torn from the top to the bottom, correct? Yes, it was. And so the way to God was thrown wide open and the old sacrificial system, it was done away with. No longer did we have to sacrifice and only once a year one man could come before God. But now the book of Hebrews says, let us therefore enter boldly into the throne room of God that we may receive grace in the time of need. So everything is different now. God says to you and I now because of Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross and the cleansing from our sins, you come to me. You are now worthy to come to me. There is nothing to hinder humanity from coming to me because of the act of love that I did upon the cross. But not so in that day. And so when people would fast, they would fast with mourning and with weeping. And so we're told in the New Testament that the Pharisees would fast and they'd put ash upon their face to make themselves pale and their clothes and their hair would be all disheveled and they would put on a forlorn look and they'd look all sad every Monday and Thursday walking around. Oh, I'm so weak. I haven't had any food. I'm so religious. I'm so holy. I'm so miserable. And all the people go, man, look at the Pharisees. There's something else. They are so spiritual. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, when he spoke to his people, his disciples, he said, when you fast, don't go around crying and moaning. Don't look all dirty and nasty. Don't make it obvious. Clean yourself up, put on a smile, and fast before your Father who is in heaven. And then your Father in heaven will reward you. Jesus said two things there. Number one, his people would fast. He didn't say if you fast. He said when you fast. Think about that. We'll pick that up in a minute. Secondly, he said, there will be a reward from your father in heaven. But he changed fasting forever. No longer does it have to be this thing of weeping and mourning and lamenting. Let me show you why in verse 19. Remember, Jesus' disciples were not fasting like the Pharisees and John's disciples. And when they asked Jesus why, Jesus said to them in verse 19, while the bridegroom is with them, The attendants of the bridegroom do not fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The Bible declares that Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament and New Testament, the God who draped himself in humanity, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, was declared the the husband of, of Israel in the Old Testament. And Israel was declared the wife. Anytime that Israel would turn away from God, it was considered spiritual adultery. God would say, why do you commit fornication with all these false gods, false gods? Why do you go up on the hills to the Ashtoreth and the Molech? And why do you play the harlot? Anytime God's people would turn away from God, he considered it spiritual adultery. And so right here, as these Jews were accusing Jesus of being impious and irreligious and his disciples of being irresponsible, Jesus began to speak of this imagery of the bridegroom or the groom. We know from the New Testament that Jesus is 
the groom, and the church is the bride of Christ, right? Correct? Amen? Hooray, hurrah. We know that after the rapture of the church, we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're pictured in Revelation chapter 19, that wedding celebration where the church is united with the groom or the bridegroom, as is said here, Jesus Christ. But when he began to say this in the presence of the Jews, the Jews knew, oh, wait a minute, he's talking about that covenant relationship between our God and us, Israel being the wife of Yahweh. Now, in the Jewish wedding in those days, you have never seen such a big party as a Jewish wedding. The Jewish wedding lasted seven full days. And so the wedding ceremony would happen, you know, and the two became one, hooray, hurrah, they're married, all that. And then in our culture, you know, when I do a wedding today and I, and I go to the reception, I, I try to get the couple out of there as soon as I possibly can. Because, you know, they got better stuff to do now that they're married. I try to get them out on the honeymoon, just out and away. Get on. What are you doing in here eating food? Go be on your honeymoon. And so we leave them alone, don't we? We send people on. Please, men, I know some of you are young. If you're thinking about getting married, don't think about skipping the honeymoon on your wife. I don't care if you got to get back to school or she's got to go back to work, man. Take some time off. Drop out of school. Whatever need be. Go on a honeymoon. Not so for the Jews in that day. When there was a wedding, they would have the ceremony, and then everybody would go to the newlywed's house for seven whole days. What a nightmare. Gee whiz, what sort of a sick custom was this? And so they go to the newlywed's house, and there they are for seven days. And even the rabbis and the priests were released from their religious duties during these seven days to do one thing party and to celebrate. Nobody had to do anything else. You had school, forget about it. You had work, forget about it. You had this duty and that duty, forget about it. For seven days, we go to their house and we party nonstop celebration. Look what just happened. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were coming to Jesus saying, why aren't your disciples mourning and weeping and fasting? As David said in Psalm 69, verse 10, I have humbled my soul with fasting. Jesus, why aren't your disciples all bummed out, walking around fasting, lamenting, and sad? And Jesus said, because I did not call my followers into a funeral, but into a wedding ceremony. Indeed, even into a wedding party. He said here that my disciples have no reason to fast because I am with them. And he said, as long as I am in the presence of my people, it is nothing but a party. Guys, I need to let you know this morning, if you don't know and understand, that Christianity is a party. Christianity is the best party you will ever go to. I've been to a lot of parties in my day. Anybody here ever been to a good party? I've been to a few. You've never been to one at my parents' house, I'll tell you that much, when they're out of town. And um, (laughs) I confessed some stuff last week, mom and dad, when you weren't here. But a party, it's a party. Listen to me now. Jesus said that this relationship I invited them into, I did not come to bring sadness, but I came to bring gladness. And the Pharisees are walking around weeping and moaning and acting like they're so religious. And I have come to bring freedom to my people and a celebration to my people. And so he says, so long as they have the bridegroom with them, speaking of his own presence, they cannot fast. Fasting then having that connotation of mourning and weeping and sorrow. But, verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Jesus said here that his disciples would at a time in history begin to fast. He said in Matthew chapter 6, when you fast, do it in this way. He didn't say if you fast. He said when you fast. By implication, Christians are called to fasting. Why? What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean what it meant when God called the people to fast on the day day of Yom Kippur or the day of atonement because our sins have already been atoned for. We're washed white as snow. It's all good from here on out. But we see that fasting is meant to be, among several other things, which we don't have the time to speak of, primarily an act of worship before God. That is a time of drawing near to God. I want you to go to Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah is just four books backwards. 
If you go backwards after Matthew, you'll get the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and before that you'll get Zechariah. Go to Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5. God is telling his prophet to say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? Listen to what God says there. This religious display, this thing that you did, Where was your heart when you did it? Was it actually for me that you fasted? Or did you do it with some ulterior motive, with some false motive? Or did you really do it as an act of worship for me, toward me, wanting to draw near to me? Turn now to Acts chapter 13. Go back the other way. Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. There was Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up uh, with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there's all these heavyweight dudes there. And it says in verse 2 what they were doing. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Wait a minute, hold on. Here we see in the New Testament that fasting is combined with worship. Ministering to the Lord is worship. While they were ministering to the Lord, what does that exactly mean? It's sort of ambiguous. I don't know. It basically means that they were giving to the Lord, serving the Lord, offering up their bodies as living sacrifices as Roman tells us to do. Hebrews chapter 13 tells us to offer up um, the fruit of praise. That is a fruit of lips that give praise to his name, offer up the sacrifice of praise. What were they doing? They were ministering to the Lord. That is to say, when they got together, they said, okay, listen guys, we're all here. There's some heavyweights here. Graham is here. T-Bone is here. Gerald is here. There's some real heavyweights in our midst. But there's really only one person right now that matters. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so when we come together as God's people, we are going to give priority to Jesus. We are going to give preference to Jesus. We are going to give honor to Jesus, praise to Jesus, glory to Jesus, beyond and above one another, and above and beyond our own needs, our own concerns, our own feelings. We are going to minister to the Lord. And when we get together as a church, that is what we're called to do. That is what we are privileged to do is come and minister to the Lord, to come before the God of the universe and say, God, I ain't got much. I got me and some stuff, but here's some of my stuff and here's me. And I'm here to worship you because you are holy. You are awesome. You have created all things and you redeemed me and you are worthy of it. And so we've got to come together with the mindset that our gathering is for and unto God. When we do that, then our gathering together becomes worship. When we don't do that, it becomes some self-serving sort of thing. And so the Lord would say, as he said to the nation of Israel in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5, when you fasted, when you did your religious thing, when you got together, was it really for me? And so it begs the question, Christians, and I've got to ask you this morning, as we have come together, have we done so for the Lord? To seek him, to honor him, to praise him. I wish we could all nod our heads and say, oh yes, absolutely. But because I am not naive and because I am a sinful man like you are, I know that we come with all sorts of ulterior motives. And sometimes church can just become about us, you know. And the moment it becomes about us, it's no longer worship. You see, this is to be a house of worship. 
Worship in many ways, not just singing songs. That's a small part of worship. But the moment we make it about us, we can't call it that anymore. We can call it other stuff. You can call whatever you want. Sing song, happy clappy, come together and drink coffee, sit in the comfy chairs, meet some people, check out some dudes, whatever you want to call it. But I think that God wants his people to get together to seek him, to worship him. And so it says here that the early church was ministering to the Lord and fasting. And when they did that, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them out. So being set out in the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and there they sailed to Cyprus. So listen to me, church. As they were simply worshiping the Lord and fasting, God gave them direction. God gave them blessings. God spoke to them. God raised up men and women in their midst to go out and further the work of the kingdom when they simply came before God and gave him the honor that was due to him. And so, Jesus said, back in our text in Mark, there will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. Well, guess what? The bridegroom has been taken away, so to speak. Jesus died upon the cross. He was in the grave three days, three nights. But then he rose again and he's ascended unto heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so we are living in the time where God's people are now called to fast because the bridegroom for a period is away from us. Again, in the Jewish wedding ceremony, once the couple became engaged... Um, the groom would get together with the father, his own father and the father of the bride and they would discuss the bride price. It usually came out to about the value of a house today. And so the guy would say with his dad, look pops, here's what we think your daughter is worth. We'll give you this much for her hand, so on and so forth. And they would agree upon a price and then son and pops would pay up the other pops and now they were engaged. Once they were engaged, that son would go away to prepare a place for them. And once he prepared the place, then he would come back and say, I've prepared the place. Now let's have that wedding ceremony. And then the big party. Jesus said in John chapter 14, you believe in God, believe also in me. He said, as the Christmas cell phone rang, <laughs> Jesus said, I go away now. Where I'm going, you cannot come. I'll be gone for a while, but then you'll see me again. I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But if I go, I will return. And Jesus did go. And Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you and I in heaven. And we know that the bridegroom is soon returning for his bride, for you and I. That time is almost complete. That preparation of the place for us in heaven and all that God is doing in this age of grace and all that he's doing with the nations and preparing the church. It's all coming to a head and the coming of the bride is soon. The bride and the spirit say, come Lord Jesus, come. And so we know that his coming is very near. And so in this time when the bridegroom is away and we await his return, now is the time Christians that we ought to be fasting. Why? Because as Jesus said, we are to occupy until he comes. As Jesus said when he was 12, I've got to be about my father's business. If you are warming a seat this morning, it is for one reason. It is for one reason. To serve Jesus Christ in this lifetime. You see, he died that you might be with him. He called you that you might be with him. And that you might be with him in paradise. Listen, if heaven is so good and Jesus died that we might go there, how come at the moment of salvation did he not just kill us and take us home to be with him? Why has he left us in this horrible place? It's as if I said to my lovely wife, sweetheart, I bought this amazing house. It's in this beautiful place. It's right on the beach. It's glorious. It's big. It's wonderful. And she said to me, hey, let's go. And I said, no, I want you to chill in a little shack down in Ventura for a while. They're on the avenue. They're off of Stanley in the ghetto. I want you to stay down there for a little while. My wife would slap me across the face and say, man, what are you talking about? Take me to the mansion. 
And yet Jesus has left us here on the avenue, so to speak, here on earth. Why, if heaven is so wonderful and he wants to be with us, why doesn't he just take us home? Because he's got a purpose and a plan for your life. He said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He said, you are and you are alone. He didn't say maybe someday you'll be. He didn't say just Brit is. He didn't say just those in professional ministry are. He said that every single Christian, every disciple is the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And if we are that, there is one thing we are doing. We are either fulfilling that role or we are failing in that role. Whether we're fulfilling it or failing in it, the role exists and is ours to live out either way. We've got to be about the Father's business. We've got to occupy until he comes. Now, here's where we talk a little bit about fasting. Fasting, as we see in the Bible, has many purposes, many reasons. Daniel fasted because he needed revelation from God. Ezra and Nehemiah would call the people to fast during times of national distress. He would call them to fast during times of national distress. The people were called to fast during spiritual emergencies. And we're told in Isaiah chapter 58 that the people were to fast that their voices might be heard in heaven, that God might hear them. We are also told in Isaiah chapter 58 that the people were called to fast to break the bondage that was upon some of the nation, to help set the captives free. And so there's all sorts of reasons for fasting. But the biggest reason for fasting is an act of worship unto the Lord where we say, God, I am going to set myself apart unto you and seek you and draw near to you because that is your desire. In the old days, to prepare food took a whole lot of time. I recently was in uh, Idaho with my family. We have a little family cabin up there and we go up there and we go fly fishing and all this other stuff. And my dad took me hunting. I don't know how you feel about hunting. I hope you don't mind this, but I shot something. It was nothing big, just little birds. I don't know how you feel about that. I'm sorry, but we went hunting and I shot some duck. Now, after I shot the duck, I learned that there was this horrible thing you have to do, which is cleaning the duck. Oh man, that was a nightmare. I couldn't do it. I couldn't deal with it. I had to have my papa do it for me. There he is mocking me, brave man. You can shoot the duck, but you can't clean the duck. I ain't taking you hunting no more. And you got to cut off the head and you got to cut off the feet and you got to pull out the guts and you got to do this whole mess. And then we take it home and he puts it in the sink. He goes, now boy, clean it further. And so I'm plucking out all these little feathers from the belly and I'm cleaning it. I'm pulling out all this stuff and I'm getting sick to my stomach. I'm saying, man, this is a bummer. Now, can you imagine if in the old days I had to kill that duck without the big shotgun? I had to find that duck, kill that duck, clean that duck, find the wood, chop down the wood, bring the wood, build the fire, build the pot to cook the duck in, cook the duck, make the plate to put the duck on, put the duck on the plate, make the fork to eat the duck with, make the fork, poke the duck, eat the duck, all that stuff in the old days. It took a lot of time to eat some food back then. And so people would say, God, I'm going to lay aside all that racket, all that time that it takes to make some food, and I'm going to spend that time seeking you. I'm going to spend that time seeking you. Now, as they would do that, things would happen. God would respond to their fast. They would receive revelation. God would hear their prayers. God would respond to the time of national distress. There is never a time in all the Old Testament, to my knowledge, when God's people begin to fast during a time of national distress and God did not answer on their behalf. God always responded. It was not because they were forcing the hand of God. It's not as though they said, okay, God, here's the deal, bro. We're not going to eat until you do something. We're going to have a sit-in. We're going to have an eat-out, whatever you want to call it. We're not going to eat until you do something. So God looked down from heaven and said, oh, no. What am I going to do? The little people aren't eating any food. Oh, now I have to do what they want me to do. Otherwise, they're going to starve to death. The little people, what am I going to do? It's not like the strike at Vons, you know. It's not like that. It doesn't force the hand of God. It doesn't impress God but it is setting aside our time and our heart and our person to seek God and to seek God alone. To say, God, I'm going to change my normal life. I'm going to stop feeding my flesh and I'm going to start ministering to you and feeding my spirit. 
That's what fasting is. Have you ever noticed that your flesh always gets what it wants? You know, you came in here this morning, you walked out the door and you realized it was cold, so you put a sweater on your flesh. And then you took one last glance in the mirror and you said, oh man, I don't look so good. So you put some paint on your flesh. And the stringy thing hanging out the top of your flesh, you took a brush and you combed that flesh. And you sprayed stuff on that stringy flesh coming out of the top of your flesh. And your feet, your feet were soft and tender and cold, so you put little rubber things on that flesh. And you chose different colored things to dress up that flesh. Excuse me, my flesh. And then... It's cold out, so your flesh was dry, you know, so you got some expensive lotion, $8 a bottle, skin trip, coconut flavor, and you rubbed it on that flesh so that your flesh wasn't ashy and so that it was nice and it was soft now. And you took a razor and you cut some of the flesh off of your flesh and you just dress it up. And then you came in this morning and you went, praise God, they finally got coffee at this church. And you went over and you said, my flesh is tired. And so you begin to feed your flesh the coffee and drink it down. You said, man, why ain't they got no donuts in this church? My flesh is hungry. Honey, I'll be back in a few minutes. I'm going to go to Starbucks and you got a pumpkin scone and you fed your flesh and you came in and you put your flesh down in a soft little seat specially designed to fit your flesh and everything that your flesh wants, you get it. If you're sitting there and your flesh is uncomfortable, you're going to shift over a little bit. And if it's too cold, you're going to bundle up. If it's too hot, you're going to do this. Some of you are already thinking about Esau's in the chamomile cafe afterwards because your flesh is hungry and your flesh dominates everything that you do all the time. Whatever the flesh wants, it gets. That's okay. That's biblical. The book of Ephesians chapter 5 says, no man ignores his flesh or abuses his flesh. No, he pampers it. That's okay. That's normal. But here's what's supernormal or supernatural. A time of denying your flesh and feeding your spirit. You see, the spirit gets just as hungry as the flesh. But when the flesh is hungry, it's much louder. And so the flesh gets hungry and we feed it. But the spirit could go on for days crying out, I am hungry. I am weak. I am weary. I am in need of sustenance, the spirit is saying, and yet we ignore it. We go on with our daily routines and we feed the flesh, but we ignore the spirit. Fasting is a time where you say, I am going to deny the flesh and I'm going to strengthen the inner man. I'm going to strengthen the spiritual me. I'm going to give attention to God and the things of God and what he wants to do in my life as opposed to all my little physical needs all the time. Now, let me tell you what happens as a byproduct of this. Number one, God responds. God always responds to fasting, heartfelt, non-religious, truly seeking him, fasting in the Bible. God responds to that. But secondly, your flesh gets put in its place. I've noticed that when I deny my flesh food, which is not often enough, usually I feed it until it hurts, but when I deny my flesh food, then my flesh begins to learn that it does not always get its way. And now as it pertains to other areas of the flesh that are plaguing me, there comes victory in my life. Maybe it's the irritability of the flesh. Maybe it's the attitude of the flesh. Maybe it's the passion or the lusts or the desires that are wrong of the flesh. Maybe it's the wandering eye or the haughty look or the uh, arrogance or whatever it is of your flesh. I find that when you begin to tell the flesh, you don't get what you always want, but I'm going to make sure that the spiritual man is stronger because the spirit wages war against the flesh, that then the flesh is put in check. And now there is victory in new areas of your life. That is not necessarily the goal of all fasting, but it is a guaranteed byproduct of fasting, putting our flesh in check, where we simply say, God, I'm going to give more attention to the spiritual than I am the physical. Now, a fast has got to be something that God lays upon your heart to do. It can't be contrived. It can't be coerced. It can't be merely prompted by the flesh. It's got to be something that the Lord leads you to do. Think of it in these terms. We often speak about prevailing prayer. Prevailing prayer is prayer that God has placed upon your heart. God puts a burden upon you and says, son, I need you to pray for this. You know that when God puts a burden upon your heart, something to pray for, that you are going to prevail in that prayer. There is going to come victory in that area. Why? Because God does not set you up for failure. You see, if God puts a burden upon your heart and says, pray for this, you can pray for confidence that you're praying according to God's will. And the Bible says, ask anything according to my will and you will have it. And so that is prevailing prayer when God puts a burden upon your heart and says, you pray 
And we know that God hasn't set me up for failure, but for success in this prayer. And so we pray and God responds and stuff happens. It doesn't always happen on our time frame or as we thought. But God is faithful to the burdens that he calls us to pray for. In the same way, God has got to be the one that calls his people to a fast. Has anybody ever been prompted? Have you ever just felt, wow, there's so much going on in my life. I need to spend some extra time with the Lord. But how do I do it? How am I going to seek him? How am I going to carve out the time? I really need to hear from the Lord in this area. Or you know what? These people in my family or in my life, these friends, they are in bondage. How can I intercede for them more effectively? How can I press in harder to the Lord? Or you know what? I'm just feeling separate from the Lord at this time. I just really want to draw near to him. How can I draw near to him more effectively? And maybe that sometimes God puts upon your heart in that moment the desire to to fast, not flesh, gee whiz. The desire to fast, to press into him, to lay aside the making of the meals, the feeding of the flesh, all those other things and say, I'm going to put aside this time to seek my God, to draw near to him, and I'm going to do it as an act of worship. And I'll tell you what comes from that. Spiritual power, new spiritual realities, a greater awareness of God's hand in your life and is moving in your life. There is something inexplainable, mysterious and dynamic when God's people fast. That God gives them fresh power and insight and zeal. If you don't believe me, it's because you don't do it. When you do it and you do it unto the Lord, you know, wow, there is something powerful in this. Who are the men in the Bible that fasted? Oh, just the lightweights, you know, Elijah, Moses, Daniel, Jesus, just the lightweights. No way, man. Everybody who, in the Bible who was somebody fasted and sought the Lord and laid aside the flesh and made intercession for the people. And when God's people responded to the call of a fast, God never failed them. What's going on in your life that requires extra spiritual attention? Religion will not meet those needs. Coming to church is not going to make God go, oh, oh, you're wonderful, let me do some stuff. But truly seeking him to draw near to him will. And we finish now, back in Mark 2, with this. Go back to Mark 2. Jesus, in explaining this, said in Mark 2.21, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wineskin into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. In those days, they would skin a goat and they would take the skin with all its elasticity and they would fill it with unfermented wine and as the wine ferments, it expands. It would expand that elastic skin of the goat and there would be this nice, lovely jug of wine. But you didn't take an old, dried up, brittle, already used wine skin and try to pour new wine into it because when it expanded, it would burst. You see, the old system could not contain the new. Same with the old cloth. If you sewed a piece of unshrunk cloth to patch a hole in it, that new piece would shrink and pull away and there would be a worse tear. That old cloth, that old system cannot sustain, cannot contain, cannot handle the new. And so Jesus was telling the Jews, I am the way. This is a new covenant. I have come, behold, to make all things new. The old things have passed away. You've got to get rid of these dead religious ideas, Pharisees. You're all wrong in the way you're going about it. I am not impressed by your religion. I am looking for your love. 
I am not impressed by your religion. I am looking for your love. I am not impressed and excited about your church going. I am looking for your heart. I am not desiring you to bow down and make little symbols or do anything else. I want your sincere adoration. I love you and I want a real relationship with you. And that is new. God removed the first degree of separation, the second degree of separation, the third degree of separation, and the fourth degree, which was your flesh and mine, which is wicked and deceitful above all else. God removed it and did away with it and made a brand new thing. And the old cannot contain the new. And so maybe God is calling you to some new stuff right now in your life. Maybe he's calling you to lay aside the old, those preconceived ideas, those preconceived notions, those religious thoughts, and to press into him in a new way. Don't try to put new wine in old wineskins. It's not going to work. God might want to do something new in your life. And it came about as he was passing through the grain fields, verse 23, on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain, that the Pharisees, these religious guys, once again said, See here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God in the time of that guy, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and he gave it also to those who were with him? And Jesus was saying to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not the man for Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In a nutshell, Jesus said, I am concerned with people, not religious systems, not mere empty rituals, not vain displays of piety. I am concerned with people. When my man David needed some food, I threw that religious system out the window and he was fed. God did not make the Sabbath so that we could be under a yoke. It was there to set us free to enjoy God. Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. Jesus did not die upon the cross so that we can have a burdensome yoke, but that we might be free. And Augustine said it this way. I think it was Augustine, some old Christian. He said, love God and do what you want. Love God and do what you want. You see, there's no religion in that. There's no burden in that. There's no works in that. Love God and do what you want. But I gotta warn you, if you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, What you want is going to be very different. What you want is going to change. You're going to want to worship him. You're going to want to serve him. You're going to want to give to him. You're going to want to meet the widows and orphans in their distress. God is going to change your life if you simply begin to love him. doesn't want your religion. wants your heart. Amen? God, we thank you for so great a salvation. Thank you that you have set us free from the law and from sin and death and from religion. And you brought us into a real relationship. I pray that this week you might lay it upon the hearts of some of your people to a fast, a partial fast, fast fast a couple things, a whole fast for an hour, for a day, whatever. But if you are calling your people, I pray that we would respond in obedience and we might be set apart for your needs, for your desires, for your wants, for your will, what you want to do in our lives. And bridegroom, we know that you are coming, that you are coming soon and very soon. Thank you that you have prepared for yourself a pure and spotless bride, having washed us in the word, having made us clean without blemish. And so we look for your coming and we want to press into you spiritually while you're away and yet with us that we might experience the fullness of you. Thank you for the freedom that we have in you, Jesus. Cause your people here to walk in joy and celebration as a wedding ceremony and in freedom from the law and empty dead religious works. In Jesus' name, amen.